Hey, what's up? It's Dean Bakari. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Mr. Tom Rath. Tom is a senior scientist for Gallup, and he's the author of a string of New York Times bestselling books, including Strengths Finder 2.0, Strengths Based Leadership, Well Being, How Full Is Your Bucket, Eat, Move, Sleep, and the upcoming book, Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Your Life, I believe the subtitle is. Um, and that's uh, that's what we're going to be discussing today. So, Tom, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. So, let's talk about the book. Um, the name of the book is Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life, um, which, by the way, I had a chance to read last week, and um, it's it's great. It's so practical. Like there's it's It's backed by research, which a lot of books that are backed by research aren't as practical. (laughs) Um, and this, this one really was. So what are the three keys? If, if you would, uh, if you could share with our audience. Yeah. You know, as I started to dig through a lot of the latest research and also to, to your point about the practicality, I, I mean, I've written about a lot of work on employee engagement, well-being, all these concepts over the years, but I'm just trying to figure out as an individual, what are the things that I can really plug into my daily routine that might make a difference so I feel like I'm fully charged each day? Yeah. And the the good news is there's a whole uh, series of incredible new research coming out that really hones in on daily well-being instead of looking at broad, nebulous constructs over a lifetime. So there are a lot of practical things emerging from that body of research. And as I started to dig in there a little bit more, Um, It turns out that the three keys that really need to be present on a daily basis in in order for you to feel like you're at your best and you're making a difference for other people, the first one is just doing a little bit of meaningful work, and that's something that's quite a bit more practical than it sounds when you talk about finding meaning in your life. It's about doing something that makes a difference for another human being today. Um, The second element that uh, I found was a real consistent theme in all of this research is that you need to have a lot more positive interactions than negative interactions because the negative exchanges just carry a heavier charge. So you essentially need to have at least 80% of your interactions with other people throughout the day need to be quite a bit more positive than negative. Mm. And then the, the third element that um, is something I've been studying pretty intensively for the last few years is that we just need to have enough physical energy to be our best every day, yeah. especially people I know who are real high achievers. I admire their other directedness. They're just, they might be the fastest people to put their own health on the back burner. Mm-hmm. And unless what I've learned over the years is even if you look at this real analytically and clinically, which is kind of my style, um, even if your only goal is to do as much for other people, you have to ensure that you have enough energy to be sharp and effective and creative and helpful for other people at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that starts by thinking about the way you uh, move around more during the day. You get better quality sleep, and you're eating the right things that give you that energy. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so crucial because people, like, die out after uh... – you know, either a lunchtime or like, <laughs> like three o'clock. Um, I mean, it used to happen to me a lot. And like one of the things I've noticed, you know, as far as energy goes is like, I'll just, I'll take a, you know, every 60 to 90 minutes, I'll, uh, I'll just stand up and like, I'll stretch. And I have these, I have this weird thing that I like to do. I've got these kettlebells next to my desk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just kind of, you know, do some curls and, and I'll kind of like do some shoulder raises and I'll just kind of jump up and down a little bit. And I find that just doing that every 90 minutes, um, is, is massively helpful. And another thing I've found 
in a book called uh, The Powerful Engagement. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. heard of it. Um, it you know, just the, the way that they describe it, where they did that study with all of those tennis players, and they studied the top tennis players in the world, and um, they noticed that the difference between the best of the best and you know maybe even the second best uh, and below was that the guys who were the absolute top you know achievers in that in that sport after they would be after they'd finish with a uh, a match or I'm not sure what you call that a set rather mm-hmm. um, th- what they would do is they would break away and they'd notice that they would just totally cut themselves away mentally uh, from from what they were doing. Like they'd kind of play around with the strings on their tennis racket and you would see that they would just kind of go somewhere else mm-hmm. uh, just for a few seconds. And what they basically found was that the people who were doing the best in any industry uh, were the folks that would just take those quick, short little breaks to just kind of recharge, refuel, re-energize themselves physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, uh, spiritually. And, uh, and then just go back to what they were doing. I found that so fascinating because it's so easy to do. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. The more I get into the, just the research on the physical health side of it, and as well, in addition to the performance and creativity and so forth, um, it's, it's remarkable for those of us that work in front of a computer primarily during the day, uh, just how much time we spend without even realizing it, just sitting down on our rear ends. And, yeah. you know, the, the thing that's got my attention recently is even if you – exercise 30 minutes a day, five days a week, that does not offset the five to six, seven, eight hours that we spend sitting mm. on a daily basis. And um, we've got to figure out ways to re-engineer our routine at work. So as you mentioned, you're getting up every 60, 90 minutes and just moving around a little bit because sitting that long in the span of a day, I, I'm I'm actually convinced at this point that the sitting throughout the day is a bigger problem than lack of exercise. And I think when you, if you look at the average person, especially here in the States in America, telling them that they need to spend 30 minutes a day doing vigorous cardiovascular activity five days a week might even do more harm than good in comparison to telling them that they need to engineer subtle activity into their work every 30, 60, 90 minutes. So what are some suggestions that you have? I guess we're just going to, we'll just do this, uh, uh, starting from the third key and then go to the to the final one. Meaning, uh, since we're already talking about energy, um, how does how does one go about structuring their day? You know, like the typical person at work, if they really wanted to maximize their energy, um, you know, from if if most people are sitting down, right, mm-hmm. uh, at work on a daily basis on their rear ends, um, how could they? How could they? What can they do to to make sure that they don't? Uh, end up, you know, suffering from the consequences of yeah, you, you started with a really good question, which is how do you set up your day? And I think that's where if you start from the, I mean, when you wake up and the way your day is structured right now, what are the ways that you could build healthier choices into your default, what I call your default routine? Mm. So if you think about, I mean, it's as simple as are there places where you could, whether it's parking at the back of the lot when you get to work and taking extra 100 steps instead of driving around and sit, sit, sitting down for five minutes waiting until a parking spot opens up, to um, <laughs> setting, I mean, having a jar of mixed nuts or apples or something in near your workspace instead of having a drawer filled with candy and um, unhealthy things sitting right there. And so if you can kind of structure your environment in advance so that you don't have to 
make tough choices and it doesn't seem like an extra effort. It's just part of your routine. That's where it becomes a lot easier because you're essentially conserving your willpower for the big battles that happen in the evening when you're at home and open your cupboard, right? Mm, yeah. So that's, I think that's a big challenge we've all got to work through. And from an activity standpoint, you know, it can be as simple as setting a little timer to remind yourself to get up every now and then. I'm uh, walking around a small office just kind of pacing right now as we talk, and that gives me more energy than if I'm sitting where it's easier to uh, get distracted or yeah. lose focus and so forth. And um, and I've got I'll, three of your books on my table right now, uh, and judging by... <laughs> <laughs> you do a lot of sitting, I'm sure, with all this writing that you do. You know, I actually, I actually don't at all. Um, really? I, I, I've, for the last three years, I've worked exclusively on a treadmill. Um, oh, and, are you, I saw so, that on the uh, documentary piece that you guys are doing. Right, so, and, and it's, I mean, some people think, well, is that really sustainable? It is, it's remarkably sustainable. I, on days when I have to travel and go somewhere to speak or for a meeting, um, it, I feel awful by two or three o'clock in the afternoon, but when I'm working in my office on my treadmill desk, I'm going 1.5 to two miles an hour all day. And I have an incredible amount of energy comparably at four o'clock and five o'clock in the afternoon as a product of working like that. So I think there's, it's been my observation, there's kind of a continuum where I started uh, pacing around on conference calls with a wireless headset at first, and then I eventually moved to, I just stacked my laptop on a bunch of books because I have too many books laying around here, <laughs> right. and started working standing up part of the day and alternating between standing and sitting because you don't want to stand all day either. You kind of need a mix of those two. And then eventually I uh, had the courage to kind of bite the bullet and put a treadmill in. I just built a homemade desk over my treadmill, and uh, that awesome. really took it to the next level and changed my health and activity and energy as much as anything that I've done. So I, I know that's a ways out in terms of the evolution of the modern workplace, but I do think we'll get there because I, I this might be out, kind of this opinion might be on the fringe, but I think we're going to get to a point where companies forcing people to sit in a stationary chair all day is almost a liability for the company. I feel like it. I mean, it it is with the studies coming out. I mean, I was reading something the other day about how it, it you know, the posture that um, be, people end up in when they just sit around all day long, um, if they haven't conditioned themselves and built up the habit to to maintain proper posture from their seats, then it can possibly even, and you might know more about this than I do, but it can possibly impact their ability to think properly. Like, does it, have you read, have you heard about that? Yeah, the- the, the studies on how much more, um, I mean, in, in classrooms, students have more attention when they're at standing desks. And when people, uh, after, I mean, there, there are a few weeks when you adapt to a treadmill desk. The first few weeks, you probably get a little less done. You're trying to figure out how to do all this at once. But then after that, people do get more done just from a sheer productivity standpoint. And there's a lot of work that focuses, I think it's pretty clear that we just think better when we move more overall. Yeah. And so if you take that mindset, I mean, it's changed the way I think as a parent or my daughter's uh, six years old, just started kindergarten at a public school here in Arlington. And um, it's about a mile away from our house, but we started walking her to school every morning. We're not doing it because she needs exercise. She gets plenty of exercise <laughs> running around, right. but we do it because she'll think better. She'll learn more and she'll remember more in the classroom if she gets that walk in the morning. Yeah. That's uh, one of the things that I always I, I always begin my day with just a nice daily walk in nature. Um, I'll get up, go to the gym, and then immediately after the gym, before I walk inside my house, I like to just go for a 15, 20 minute walk, you know, get grateful for everything, think about the day, envision what I'm going to do. 
And, uh, and I find that just doing that just is, is a massive, massive help just for my overall being. Yeah, I'm sure that's also a great way to focus your mental energies and have some clarity before you get. I mean, another big challenge I wrote a lot about in this book about are you being full, or about being fully charged is um, there. There is so much inbound stuff just flying at us all day with mm. dings and buzzes and phone calls and pop up notifications and so forth that trying to carve out even a little bit of time to think in the absence of that is pretty important nowadays. But which by the way, um, I think maybe this would be a good time to transition into interactions. The, a couple of things that you just, you talked about in the book that I, I really think are worth mentioning. Uh, one of which is like, shut off your phone. For those of you listening, shut off your phone when you're talking to people. <laughs> uh, Tom, could you talk a little bit more about how much of a negative impact that has on your, uh, on your conversations and the meaningfulness level of, of those? Like, not necessarily to shut off your phone, but don't look at it when you're having a meal. I've been a huge proponent of that. Like, you if know, I'm talking to somebody, I do not have my phone out because I just instinctively feel like um, it, it, it makes them feel less important. And if you have a human being in front of you, then show that human being that you're paying attention and actually care about them. Um, but continue on, please. Yeah, you know, that's been some, one of the most interesting things to me is that uh, with the way we kind of let, allow our smartphones to run our lives nowadays, where I think on there was a study on Android phones, people unlock it 115 times a day. Yeah. Um, and But the way that phones kind of run our lives now, it's also this big reminder to other people that we're in a room with that the phone has priority over our interaction with them. Mm. And it's so bad that even if... If I have my phone, and I have one of those iPhones that's too large to keep in your pocket most of the time, <laughs> and so if I take it out and set it on the table, even if it's powered off, no notifications, no lights, no buzzing, no anything, if I just set it on the table and I'm in a meeting with three other people, it tells those three people that I don't care what they're talking about, and it degrades the quality of the conversation in clinical studies on that. Mm. So it's not even shutting your phone off. It's keeping it out of... The, a visible line of sight for people because it sends such an awful message. Yeah. So how do I convince my wife to do that? <laughs> I'm still working. I'm still working on that myself. Um, but no, it's, I think if, if you start and kind of work back from the, I think the bigger problem that's at the root of that is the fact that uh, we started off with phones that, I mean, do smartphones can be really helpful when you're in a long line at a grocery store and you're bored mm, yeah. and it can kind of be a pacifier where you learn something new. It's great. But the challenge is to sit back and say, if you're in a one-on-one conversation with somebody you really care about, it, one of your kids, a spouse, a colleague, a good, a good friend at work, and you're trying to help them with something, what really deserves to break the flow of that important conversation? So Get that in mind and then look at your phone and kind of turn all your notifications off and say which ones deserve to break in all the time. Yeah. Because when I've done that, my, I've found personally that 98% of the things that I allow to show up on my lock screen or to create some kind of an audible notification don't need to do that. Yeah. And so as I've started to pair that back, it's, it really allows you to focus a lot better if you have the default be no notification and instead, the, no, the default is to pay attention to the person you chose to be in a room with. Yeah. Yeah, usually when I'm uh, doing something, working on like my, 
my hardest task for the day um, or, or a project that requires all of my attention, I just turn, I just flip the phone around and it's on silent. And then I put on the do not disturb on my MacBook. Um, mm-hmm. If it has to do with my computer that I'm doing the work on. And I'll just make sure that I have absolutely no disturbances um, and for that period of time. Yeah, you know, I think there are a lot of people who don't know how handy that do not disturb feature can be. I know I, I use a lot of <laughs> Apple products, and both on my computers and on my smartphone, I, I use that on a daily basis because it's kind of a one way to toggle everything to an off position, which is it's a real handy feature in the last iterations of uh, smartphones and so forth. By the way, what do you think about the Apple Watch? Are, are, is, is everyone at Gallup going to be getting one? You know, I've I've been I've been real close to the whole wearable field, and um, I, I was supposed to get one last Friday. It hasn't shown up yet, um, and I'm I'm very interested in it for the reason that we're talking about here. Because I read a there's a great article in Wired magazine a couple of weeks ago uh, that talked about when uh, Johnny Ive and his team were saying, "What is this product? What are we designing it for? What's the purpose?" Several years ago, mm. and their design challenge they started with was that exactly what you and I have been talking about for the last few minutes, which is we're so wired to our phones, it's taking away our time and our relationships and everything else. So they tried to build it in a way that would allow you only to be subtly notified when you really needed something, and you wouldn't have to take your phone out of your pocket 115 times a day. Mm. And so, and one of the early reviews I read on the TechCrunch website was talking about how it does give you time back because you use your, you unlock your phone 80% less. And if that's true, it could be a much better disruptive force. And I think a lot of people are just expecting to be one more thing nagging you a hundred times a day. And I, because it has variable notifications, like we're talking about, I'm cautiously optimistic that at least I think I'll be able to use it in a way that keeps me even more focused on my kids in the evenings and so forth. But we'll see. Yeah. 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 Um, Oh, another thing that I I wanted to to mention about that I found was really interesting in the book was the, um, the, I, I always like to surprise surprise my wife for instance with different things and uh that that piece that you wrote about how just anticipation is is more you know we remember things and uh anticipate them that value seems to be more than the actual event itself yeah you know it's 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 funny you're saying how you like the surprise too i actually wrote a there was a whole one of the main five strategies in my first book how full is your bucket was all about the importance of surprise and i so i wrote that before i got engaged and then once I got engaged, so I, I planned this surprise trip for our honeymoon and so forth. I was going to wait and tell my wife until we were on our way or whatever. And then in the while we were engaged, I read this long article that was all about the anticipation piece saying that, you know, we actually get more value out of looking forward to the vacation than the vacation itself. <laughs> and and so midstream, I told her, I, I that changed my thinking. I said, you know, here's the exact place we're going to. Here's the website. Here are a bunch of pictures and made a little card for. Her. And sure enough, about two weeks later, I, I walked up behind my wife, then fiance at the time, and uh, saw her on the website checking out the <laughs> resort and all this stuff. And I realized I'd made the right decision there. And that, you know, it's kind of funny how we think about a vacation as, oh, we get the time away and it's that uh, four days on a beach or whatever. But realistically, there's more well-being created in the six months before and in the six years remembering that trip than there is in the actual moment. Yeah, I, I, I was actually talking to my wife about that just yesterday. I was like, you know, babe, um, you know, last time, the, the last time that we just went to Ojai, that's one of our pl- favorite places to go mm-hmm. to here in California, um, and we'll just like rent out a little cabin and we'll just go out there. And the last time we went, which was just a couple of months ago, 
um, I had actually set up a surprise and I can't remember for the life of me right now how she found out about it. Um, <laughs> but she found out about it uh, a week or so prior to us actually going. And uh, we were talking about that last night and I was like, you know, what I recently read was that the anticipation of going to somewhere like Ojai, like last time we went, seems to be more, you know, the, the value of doing that and the memories that we create after we, we were done with our little trip, like the last time, you know, are, are more valuable. And she was like, gosh, you know what? I, I guess we do. I do get more excited when we're, when we're thinking about going on vacation and we do laugh and enjoy the memories a lot more. So I guess you're right, huh? Yeah, you you can take it from someone with a four-year-old and a six-year-old that the actual travel time is not as enjoyable <laughs> as you imagine it to be. But, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting because it brings up a broader point about how we prioritize some things in life where Americans in particular are pretty bad at this. And when you look at the percent of discretionary income spent on um, purchases, Americans spend about 50% of their uh, finances on houses and cars. Mm. And if you compare that to other um, developed countries where housing and so forth are similar prices and so forth, they spend closer to 30, 35, sometimes closer to 40% on those two things. And so we're spending way too much on stuff to really oversimplify it mm. and not enough on experiences relative to stuff. Because yeah. we we imagine that if you go buy a new suit or you go buy a new car, it's going to give you X amount of happiness and it delivers a little bit less than you're expecting. But we greatly underestimate the influence of an experience, whether that's taking your grandkids to a movie or going out to dinner with friends or going on a vacation. That creates a lot more well-being than we would ever guess. And, you know, so there's probably nothing that's changed my own kind of uh, spending habits over the last five, 10 years in some of that research because, I mean, I've got a, a an old Toyota Prius that's 12 years old now, barely runs, tires are always flat. I'm not about to waste money on a new car compared to spending it on experiences and vacations. Mm. Very nice. So moral of the story, spend more on experiences um, for yourself and others as opposed to spending on like a material good. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Um, are there any other points that you think that people people should should know about with regard to interactions the second the second key yeah you know i think it comes down to the little the little stuff there with your interactions and how can you make sure that at least 80 percent of them as i mentioned are more positive than negative because the negative ones carry a bigger weight and this is also connected to what we were talking about on this topic but um the more I study this in this day and age, I'm convinced that one of the most valuable things you can ever do for another person is to ask them a, a, an important question and to close your mouth and force yourself to keep your mouth closed and to listen and listen and listen because no one's spending enough time doing that anymore. So I think that's another challenge that leads to great interactions and better relationships there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Rather than waiting for them to shut up so you can say what you want to say, actually listen. <laughs> yeah, it's preloading. <laughs> um, awesome. So let's talk about meaning, if we could. Uh, and when I first you know, embarked on my, my search, you know, trying to find meaning in my work, uh, you know, the Gallup studies were one of the first things that I stumbled on. Uh, so maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Uh, that. Right now, as far as workplace engagement goes, it's bumped up a little bit, right? As opposed, as in comparison to the last time you guys did those studies. 
Um, where are those numbers at right now as far as engagement and fulfillment? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. With the, the engagement numbers might have bumped up just a few points here and there at places, but it's, it's been pretty stable over time where you've got about, I mean, it's usually roughly 30% of people who are really fully engaged in their jobs. But, you know, it, it's it's important to note that I think engagement is one important piece of an equation, which is that's how how much discretionary effort you're essentially bringing to your workplace every day. Yeah. But when we started to do more and more work uh, for the a book we wrote called Wellbeing at Gallup over the a few years ago, <coughs> it turned out that even if people are fully engaged in their jobs like that, they're in that 30%, you still have almost half, 40% of the people in that 30% are either suffering or struggling in their personal lives. Mm. So I think we've got to look at even broader metrics to say, okay, so if, sure, you're bringing a great effort to this company you joined, but are, are you getting more out of it? Are you better off because you joined that company instead of one of their competitors? Are your family members and relationships better off because you joined that company? Can that company prove that you're healthier because you're there instead of somewhere else? I, I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of crazy, the notion that we, for most people, I think, go to work in the morning at 8 o'clock and they leave at 5 o'clock a little less healthy than they were when they showed up. Mm. And and I, and I think a lot of companies are already asking the question, can we turn that around? And they can do that. And as soon as organizations start to show that they're really helping people to serve a larger purpose and they're improving their health and so forth, I think it's a very different value proposition. And it's a much better fundamental compact between employees and employers for the future. So I, I'm interested in spending a lot of time uh, kind of talking with employees and business leaders about how we make that happen. Yeah, I, I, I apologize. Oh, no worries. Go ahead. I wholeheartedly believe that, you know, it's you can't differentiate your personal fulfillment with your professional fulfillment. There's no like divide. <laughs> you right. know, people sometimes people think that and um it's it's just I mean if you're if your boss yells at you at work, then that makes you not feel too great about yourself at work, but also when you walk through the door, that might, you know, uh, sort of trigger something else and maybe a fight with your spouse or you yelling at your kids or something like that. I mean, it all just blends in together. It's all one big undivided whole. Um, and I, I don't know why more folks don't get that. But Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I would have thought that there's a, I think I would have thought this kind of naively a few years ago, that there's this assumption that if you and I join efforts as a part of a company or an organization that we're both assuming that we can do more together and that we'll be better off as a product. And there's kind of a, a collective mission there. And the the thing that really got my attention um, as we asked some questions at Gallup is the fact that if you ask people if their lives are significantly better off because of the organization that they work for, just uh, 12% strongly agreed with that. And most people... Um, Wow. Apparently claim that their their organization's a detriment to their overall well being. Wow. I mean that's that's what made me quit my job. <laughs> to be to be honest, I used to work for uh I used to work for a tobacco company. And um the you know for for the first year um I I I felt I felt great because I was not thinking about you know, my, my overall contribution. Uh, I was just thinking about myself and the fact that they made me feel real significant um, and, you know, training employees and giving these presentations and doing this and that. 
And then I really, really started to look within myself and think about the fact that, hey, you know, what's the what's the actual, what kind of contribution am I making right now uh, other than the one that returns back to myself? Uh, and the more and more I started thinking about that, I, I more, you know, began to think about the fact that, hey, you know, anything that I'm doing is contributing you know what? What are we doing? What's the what's the goal of this organization? The goal of this organization is uh, to profit as much as possible, with no attention being paid to the consumers and to the people that we're serving, because we're not helping people. <laughs> you know, it's that's a really interesting um, situation. I'm, I'm curious about because it's as I've thought more and more about how people create meaning in their work and studied the research on this. As long as you can connect what you're doing even on a daily basis if you're answering a customer's questions or if you're writing computer code to something that improves someone's life a ways down the line and then you find a way to see that those are kind of the two keys but even as i've talked to people just in the last few days with interviews with this book i've kind of noted the one exception to that in my mind might be someone who works for a tobacco company frankly. oh really and so that's yeah, I mean, so here's here's i mean i've never even talked about this on air but like yeah i guess uh you know well, this would probably have no better time than now uh, talking to somebody who researches this. But, you know, I remember sitting in my car before meetings, um, like literally, and this is when I knew that it was time to just go. Uh, and shortly after these events, I just quit. I, I remember just sitting there thinking and just talking to myself out loud and just like, why am I doing this? And how is this benefiting anyone besides myself? And I remember having a couple literally like just crying in my car by myself before going into uh, before going into a meeting. Um, it, it feels weird just talking about it right now, to be honest with you. But uh, I knew that right after that, I was like, man, this is I got to I got to go. I got to you know, quit. It's such a powerful testimony that I mean, it, it, to me, it, it really helps me to think about um the importance of connecting our work with something that serves even one other human being and makes their lives a little bit better as a product. I mean, that's the more I got down to the definition of meaning, I, I don't, I'm not sure that people need to have some big, broad purpose and wait for something to descend from the heavens that they're the one and only person meant to do. But I, I do feel like we've got to set a bar that we feel like we're making a productive contribution either to society or to a child that you're home with or to a relationship or something that you can really see the tangible influence that makes a difference. And I, I mean, just based on hearing you talk about that, I mean, I, I sure hope that most people keep looking and don't stop until they've at least found something that they can take pride in some of the eventual end product of it. Yeah, absolutely. And for those who are, you know, just working for a company that, you know, honestly creates value for its consumers <laughs> something that's not a tobacco company for instance um so some folks wonder if you know if i want to find meaningful work some people think that they need to change their job completely what a lot of people don't think about is the fact that they can create meaning in their jobs um so do you think you could talk a little bit more about that for people who are just kind of tossing that around in their minds right now yeah, I think it's it's important. I mean, there, there are some cases where if you've tried and tried to make the job you have into one you can love and you haven't had success at that for a long time, then sometimes it is time to make a switch. But I think a lot of people can benefit from just putting a little more effort into, uh, I mean, at a basic level, 
saying, what are a few moments in a day? You don't have to, I mean, no, none of us get to do really meaningful stuff all day. At work, yeah, right? yes, absolutely. But how, how do you find a few moments where you can see that you're making a difference and then to help kind of, if there's some way to shine a mirror on that, so you're realizing it on a day-to-day basis that, yeah. um, if it's if you're cooking food, is there a way you can see your way out of the kitchen to see someone who's enjoying a meal that you've cooked? It can be that simple. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think at a kind of a broader level, over time, it's a, a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Shane Lopez, who's been a researcher on hope over the years. He's he's been doing some work uh, talking about how some of the best jobs and careers are. Uh, made, not found. So it's not like yeah. you find this ideal fit. You have to get into a job, and it's never perfect, but then you make it into a job where you can have a lot of meaning and be really proud of your work on a day-to-day basis. And I I, I think he might be right, Shane, that um, we can do more good in organizations around the country by helping people to uh, make the jobs they have into ones they love instead of just waiting for everyone to find the right fit, which we've got to keep working on that too. But that's a complex puzzle of supply and demand. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. A lot of times people ask me about passion. Um, how do I quote unquote find my passion? And, um, I think that the, the, the question comes from a, from a, from a good place. I just think that it's a, it's a matter of perception. I think that you you don't find passion. It's not like you're flipping through a magazine and oh my god, oh, oh is that that's that's my passion right there? I just found it. I think it's more so a matter of cultivating your your passion or or bringing it with you. Um, because if you're not passionate about, I mean, I think that the most passionate people are passionate about as much as they can possibly possibly find passion in. You know, hmm. if you're going to make your bed, you're going to make your bed, you know, with gusto, <laughs> right? Um, and and you're going to bring that same energy to your work. You're going to bring that same energy to your interactions with people. Um, at least that's the way that I like to look at it and think about it. Yeah, and I what I've, I've dug more into the research on this. It's it does matter a lot that you're interested in what you're doing because that's good for your well-being, even though companies don't look at it enough. Um, and it matters that you have natural talent to do something because yes. you've just got more room for growth in areas where you have natural talent. And then what I, what I think might be most important that we don't step back and reflect on as much is how can you take your interests and your talents and match those to the needs of the world? Yes. Because it's it's actually a little easier if you start to work back from what does your community need? What does your organization need? What does your family need? What does the world need? And then you work back to how you might be able to make a contribution instead of starting with yourself as the focal point of the world, yeah. because that's not the way things really work. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's, that's so true. That's so true. I know that um, there's a lot of different variations on that tripod, but I like to call it the GPS formula. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you, what are you, uh, what are you great at? Um, what are you passionate about and how can you combine those two to serve the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, your G, your P and your S. Um, so on that topic, are there, have you studied anything on mastery and flow? Yeah. You know, I've been one of the, I, I he taught in my graduate class and, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi did. And yes. I think his work on, uh, flow in particular has been, um, some of the most important and influential, and you can see how it's um, kind of been pulled into almost every area of study, and at least in psychology and workplace and stuff mm-hmm. over the last uh, 20 years, which is really neat to see. Um, and I, I do think that there's there's kind of that element that he talks about in flow of where you're so engrossed in what you're doing that you kind of lose track of time and time stands yeah. still. And I, I think that may be one of the best tales 
of when you're in a spot that you should give more time and attention to, focus more on, figure out how you can spend even a greater percentage of your day in that area because it's when you when you hit that optimal state of flow is that, I mean, that's probably as good an indicator of what your natural talents are as um, a lot of assessments I've spent time on and others have as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, so it's a good thing to step back and say, where do you experience those moments and how can you capitalize on that even more? Because it's likely when you're in those moments, it's something that you're uh, pretty good at as well. For sure. For sure. And um, so how does, how does Tom Rath organize his day? How do you, how do you set up your day just out of curiosity? Yeah. You know, I, I try and, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, I try and set up my day so that I uh, get kind of get what I need to done early on. So I get some, um, vigorous activity and early in the day, uh, have some time uh, walking my daughter's school with the whole family and my wife, ideally. Um, and then when I'm in writing mode, I really try and get uh, some productive writing done on my treadmill uh, early on in the day before I begin responding to email, which I think we all have this call of kind of feeling like we have to respond to email and things online. And uh, sometimes I even force myself to get my activity in before I start responding or doing any of that because once you get pulled into the vortex of response things get difficult oh yeah Yeah. um and i've also i've also kind of learned a lot from people who set pretty established routines where i usually have um the same uh kind of fruit and vegetable filled breakfast once in a while on the road i'll have some an omelet with a bunch of vegetables in it so i i do that and then i eat a big salad every day at lunch kind of boring usually the same thing but i try and get pretty much all the healthy nutrients and servings of vegetables you could possibly need before noon in a given day um, as a part of my routine. I do the same thing. And yeah. and so I, as I load, I feel like as I kind of front-end load my day that way from what I've learned on energy and so forth, that really makes a difference. And then um, I've been, now that I'm out of writing mode right now, I've been pretty deliberate about trying to initiate a few proactive conversations with other people about what I can do to help them and help their work get out to more people and so forth. I've um, One of the things I've realized, I think, as I get a little bit older is that, uh, I mean, simply working on your own projects or for me working on my own books, it's it's interesting, but it's not that scalable, frankly. Mm, yeah. Um, and I feel like I'd rather, I actually have a lot more interest in putting my efforts into other people's work and helping other people's work to get out to more people um, because it's more meaning. I think it's more meaningful and it's... Uh, more more interesting to me in some cases too so awesome that, I, I i try and orient as much extra time as i get towards that uh later on in the day and then as we talked about earlier in the evenings i do my very best to shut down and um have focused time at dinner with i think almost every night sit down at dinner with our whole family and we kind of all go around and talk about what's gone well that day and have a good meal together and then get get the kids to sleep and uh, then I watch about an hour of television at night because television's really good nowadays. <laughs> Especially with that's Netflix. A, that's yeah, that's my getaway at the end of the day is about an hour <laughs> of unwinding after the kids are asleep with my wife and uh, watching something good on Netflix or somewhere else. Cool. And do you um, so when you when you're thinking about what you're going to do for that day? Do you usually have one big thing that you focus on? Do you write what you're what you're going to do down or do you have like any productivity tools or anything like that? Or, and also do you journal? You know, I, I've, my, my entire life is uh, stored inside the uh, online program Evernote nowadays. Yeah, I use the same thing. Uh, so I, I've, I've been using that for, I think since it very first came out as an iPhone app and um, it, that 
that's kind of where I store and organize all my thoughts and ideas and catalog things coming in and think about future projects and future books and keep things on my radar screen. Um, and so that's that's been my best way to structure both research and my own thoughts and writing over the years. And then I get I have a much more deliberate process when I'm trying to put a bunch of research or a book together um, than I do on a day-to-day basis. Very nice, very nice. And I always like to ask our guests what their favorite books are. Do you have any that you uh, would recommend to our audience or books that have influenced your philosophy or sort of your way of thinking? Yeah, you know, I've been, let's see, I'm trying to think about broadly that have influenced my thinking. I've been reading, I, I, people send me early copies of books. I've been reading a lot of books lately. A um, bunch of good things coming out soon. Uh, you know, in terms of the the relationship between people and work, I, I just finished reading a book called Work Rules by Laszlo Bach, who's the head of people at Google. And it's it's an exceptionally rigorous and compelling read on how good things could look in terms of the relationship that we have with our employers in the future. I think I, I, I admire the way he and Google decided to share how they run, a, run, run an organization, how they build a culture that makes a difference, even though that could theoretically be a competitive advantage. I think they sat around and said, you know, the good of sharing this outweighs that. And it's got all kinds of real practical stuff about from managing people to better ways to hire people so they're in the right job in the first place and so forth. So that's been one of the more influential reads on business uh, in recent years. Um, on more of a personal level, I, I read a book um, a few months ago by a guy, Todd Henry, called Die Empty. And it's it's a pretty provocative read about really refocusing and trying to do your best work on a day-to-day basis. So those are those are a couple of uh, recent ones and Go, I mean, going all the way back, I think um, some of the work of uh, Peter Drucker was most influ- influential real early on and mm, some yeah. of the thinking around business books. And um, just I, before I had kids, I, I read at least a book a week on average. And now I've slowed down a little bit, but there's so much good stuff. And then I, the other one I would mention is that I think has been deeply influential across the entire business sector and nonfiction sector is a... Uh, Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. Yes, um, yeah, phenomenal and, book. And I mean, Adam's just as, as good a guy as it gets. And his research that he reviews in that book uh, has really helped me to rethink the way uh, I orient my efforts so that, I mean, I, I, I challenge myself at almost every turn to say, is this other directed? Is this serving another person? Mm. Am I giving as much as I could? And it's, you know, the documentary that I've been working on, uh, we interview um Thomas Gilovich, who's a researcher, been studying those same topics at Cornell, and he talks in this documentary about how you just have to give, and then give a little more, and then you give until it hurts, and then you keep giving. <laughs> and, that's, and he talks about how that's kind of the secret to well-being, and boy, do I think he's right. That that quote of his has really resonated with me in the last few days. I've been watching some raw footage from that documentary that'll be out in a few months here. Awesome. You want to talk a little bit about that while we're while while it's up for discussion right now? Um, the documentary and a little bit more about is it going to be a, just sort of a deeper dive um, into being fully charged in the three keys, energizing your work and life, like you talked yeah, about it, in the book. Yeah, the documentary. It's a new. Uh, experiment and project for us. It's a, it's a deeper dive with a lot of the top scientists whose work is featured in the book, Are You Fully Charged? But more than anything else, frankly, it's a, my hope with that documentary was to uh, help that important research from all these experts 
to reach out to an audience that doesn't uh, doesn't read, read. nonfiction, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, not, not only there, there's there's a big percent of people that don't read, but then if you look at the percent of people that don't read nonfiction, it's frightening for Gosh, someone whose yeah. job is to write nonfiction yeah. books. It's crazy. Um, I was actually looking at the top 100 authors um, on Amazon the other day or a couple of weeks ago, and it, it it blew my mind because I think it's like something like the first 50 or some crazy chunk uh, were were all fiction authors. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's it's incredible how um, few people, on average, that I that when I'm spending time with groups, uh, really. I mean, and, I, and honestly, I don't know that it's changed that much over time. It's because nonfiction sales have either been pretty steady or gone up when you look at both digital and print. Yeah. Um, but it, I think the shift we're seeing here, and maybe some of it's generational as well, is that there are a lot more people watching real high quality documentaries yes. um, through things like Netflix, like we're talking about and Amazon and iTunes, where it's, it's so easy when you're looking at kind of all la carte menus of viewing to say, Hey, I'll check out this documentary over here. And um, I think there's, I especially, I learned this the hard way working on uh, health is that no matter how much effort I put into a book that the last book was eat, move, sleep. Um, there are just certain people who aren't, ever going to read a nonfiction book about health, period. <laughs> and so what are ways that you can meet people where their need is? And I, I'm hoping video is a, a good way to get at that. So yeah. we've been real hard with a, a guy who uh, was an executive producer at CNN to put together a documentary on this topic that goes real deep on the energy topic and then also gets into the interactions and a big closing section on meaning. Yeah, I think a lot. I think that that'll be a huge success for you guys. I hope because a lot of people do enjoy, you know, if if, you, if they don't like to read, uh, they'll they'll check out the documentary or uh, even audiobooks. A lot of people are picking up, you know, audiobooks now as well um, to listen to while they're driving to work and things of that nature. So, um, very good, Tom. Awesome. And uh, before we close it out, one of the questions that I ask every single one of our guests, and it's the final question, which is. What does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? You know, it's a great question, something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. <laughs> um, and I think for me, um, meaning a, living a meaningful life is doing a few things today and contributing to a few efforts um, yet today that have a chance to, uh, live on and grow and make a difference after I'm gone. And that's what orients my thinking on a daily basis. Beautiful. Awesome. Tom, thank you so much. I, I also wanted to just take a moment to, to just thank you for the contributions that you've made in this, in, in the industry of not just, you know, high performance, but leadership and, and it's in the true sense of leadership and that, you know, uh, leaving a legacy and making a contribution to really and truly better the lives of other people. Your work has made uh, a huge impact on my life. So I just wanted to, to say thank you for that. I, I deeply appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Um, so where can people connect with you? Uh, and a little bit more about the book. When does the book come out? Uh, where can people get in touch with you if they wanted to learn more about you? And the book, Are You Fully Charged? Yeah, the book is on sale uh, May 5th at bookstores everywhere and online. And 
people can uh, learn more about the book and read the first few chapters and check out a trailer of the video. Um, and the, there's a kid's book accompanying the kind of nonfiction book as well. Uh, my wife a, loved that, by the way. Um, when oh. Your publisher sent it over to us, <laughs> and she's flipping through it. It's on her. It's in her office right now. We've got a little baby girl on the way. So, oh, congratulations! Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's been a, that's been a fun little project. I mean, I'm at the point with some of this work where, I mean, it's a little bit of it seems off the beaten path for a business book author, obviously, <laughs> but but it's it's meaningful stuff and trying to make a difference with kids with. I mean, the, the kind of health crisis we've got with young children across the country now, that was the, a big part of intent with doing that as well. So anyhow, people can check out the documentary in both of those books. Uh, both books will be available on May 5th, and uh, the website's tomrath.org. Awesome. Tom, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Absolutely.